Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein and this is The Competitive Edge. What you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the Panthers' world of entertainment. Going to need that explained, but I'm sure it's coming because today we have From Fibre to Cyber with the Honourable Michelle Rowland, MP, the Minister for Communications, who talks to us about her journey from competition law to national politics and the importance of communications through the pandemic and beyond. During the pandemic, we relied on the comms sector more than any other. Yes, of course, it was a medical and political state of emergency, but what did we need to keep us going? We needed comms to keep going. We needed the NBN to work. We needed our mobile services to work and we needed the post to work. Some days getting that package from an Australia Post delivery person in a hazmat suit was the highlight of a lot of people's days. But first, Matt, what's been happening around the grounds? Well, last month we spoke about the cyber incident at Optus and now there's been another pretty major breach. This time it's at Medibank Private the largest private health insurer in Australia. It's potentially a lot worse. Yeah, and it's still not clear what's happened to the bulk of the Optus data. The Privacy Commissioner has got some extra funds to investigate that, but it could be that the hacker actually got rid of most of the data like they said they did. Let's hope. Here, though, Medibank has confirmed that data about all of its 4 million customers has been accessed, including some health claim data, which can be pretty sensitive, of course. Uh, It says it's been contacted by the hackers with ransom demands, which do often get paid in these kind of situations, even though the Federal Police have just come out and said that's a pretty bad idea. Well, I saw that the Attorney General has announced some whopping new maximum penalties for serious breaches of the Privacy Act, and that could include not taking reasonable steps to protect the personal information that you hold. That's right, and it's a big hike in penalties, going from $2.2 million to the greater of $50 million, or three times the benefit of the conduct, or 30% of your adjusted turnover, which is the same as the new competition and consumer law penalties. And those have just now been passed by Parliament and are going to come into effect the day after they get royal assent. You think that'll focus the mind, but it also does raise some questions like what is the benefit of not taking reasonable steps? How do you quantify that? Because you might want to work that out to avoid paying 30% of your adjusted turnover. That's right. And if you haven't taken reasonable steps, then how long have you not taken those reasonable steps for? How far back do you go? If you've never taken the steps that you should have, then that could be pretty much forever. Well, indeed, if you have to pay 30% of your turnover back to the dawn of time, then you really might want to get a better idea of what's a reasonable step and what's a serious breach. Yeah, and there are some proposals in the current review of the Privacy Act that'll deal with those issues, Mm -hmm. as well as some other changes that might make a difference, um, like having a bit more clarity about how much information a business needs to hold onto and for how long, or a direct right of legal action for anyone who's been affected by a breach. So that review was announced by the last government almost three years ago, and it's had an issues paper and a discussion paper with some exposure draft legislation and nearly 400 submissions. Is the end in sight, Matt, or do we need to go another round? So the new Attorney General has said that he's looking at all those submissions, uh, and he also has some plans left over from the last time he was Attorney General in 2013. A lot's been happening lately, but it might not change anyone's position all that much. And I think they'll just want to get a new exposure draft out pretty soon, maybe by the end of the year with a brief consultation on that ahead of a new bill. Sounds like a very nerdy Christmas coming up. What else is going on? Well, ACCC Chair Gina Cascott-Leib gave an interesting talk at a conference on antitrust in developing and emerging economies, which MLEX have reported on, thank you to them, and which focused this year on the role that developing countries can play in controlling big tech. Wait, are we a developing country? I mean, there's always room for improvement, right? We're mm. definitely a small country by population. 
And there is a real question over how we can best regulate these huge global companies and how we fit in with the other agencies around the world. Well, we punch above our weight in sport, especially those sports that other countries don't play, huh? (laughs) So maybe we can do that with regulation too. Look, I think we can, but we don't always have to necessarily, because what happens in other jurisdictions can often answer these questions for us. And the chair gave the example of Facebook's fairly recent acquisition of Giphy, or Jiffy if you like. I'm not sure I do like. I mean, Jiffy is an actual word, but Giphy isn't. It's named after the GIF and the G's for graphics, isn't it? It is, but acronyms don't have to work that way. If you think about our friends at CEDAR, the C is for committee. We're supposed to be saying cater all this time. But the C before an E is always a soft C, like celery or cephalopod, etc. Tell that to the Celts. Tell that to Celtic. (laughs) Ange, Ange Postacoglu, where are you? If you're listening, help me. Anyway, it seems like most of the developers who came up with the format called it GIF, like the peanut butter, apparently. Though none of that really matters to Giphy. They can call themselves what they like, of course. Why are we even talking about this? Sorry, it's because ACCC chair Gina, and not Gina, Cascot-Lieb, said that the ACCC hadn't been asked to clear the Giphy acquisition. So they've been investigating that as a possible breach of our act. But then last month, the UK authority decided that the deal would lessen competition and Giphy would have to be sold. And you couldn't sell Giphy just in the UK because it's not that kind of business. No, so the nature of these businesses can actually mean that smaller jurisdictions can have the decision taken out of their hands, for better or for worse, by other agencies. In that case, the ACCC got the outcome it may well have wanted without having to make its own decision or go to court. I can see how that works with a merger, which is often an all or nothing thing. But if one regulator decides that a company has to change its conduct, it could limit that change to one jurisdiction, couldn't it? It could, and they often start that way, but then end up rolling out the change more broadly. So the chair mentioned that the Japanese Fair Trade Commission had made Apple allow so-called reader apps like Netflix or Spotify to point their users towards external websites so they could sign up outside of Apple's payment system. And that change now applies globally to those kind of apps. And even if regulators do decide for themselves, they can use other jurisdictions as precedent, can't they? They can. And the chair pointed to some new draft rules against self-preferencing in Vietnam, which are pretty similar to the ones in the European Digital Markets Act. And I guess we can expect other jurisdictions will also take the cues from these more established jurisdictions and laws, and we'll soon see if Australia does that as well. All this is to emphasise, though, that the regulators are working together globally in a lot of different ways. It's the super friends all over again. What else is happening? Also speaking at that conference was Heidi Sada from Mexico's Federal Economic Competition Commission, or CAFESI, not CAFECI, even though the C is for competition. I thought CAFESI was something a former president once mysteriously tweeted and everyone thought he'd had a stroke. Yeah, that was CAFEFI. And the full quote, if you remember, was despite the negative press CAFEFI. One good thing about that was that it inspired the Communications Over Various Feeds Electronically for Engagement, or CAFEFI Act, which was meant to treat the president's many social media posts like any other presidential records, and is one of the few of those acronym bills they love so much in the US that was worth the trouble. Yeah, wow, a true milestone for humanity, that one. That and the TLDR Act, right? That's going back a bit. That's right. And Heidi Sada was also talking about hipster antitrust, also going back a bit. Mm -hmm. She said that Mexican competition law isn't strictly concerned with social issues like sustainability or employment, But it's found that sometimes by a happy accident, solving an economic issue can also have social benefits. Didn't Ron Sims say something similar when he was denying antitrust hipsterism, that competition law could help with income distribution or media diversity, like a side benefit? He did say that. It's quite similar. Um, And one of Haiti Starter's examples was a sanction they brought against the Mexican Football Federation and the clubs of the Liga MX for colluding to reduce competition in the transfer market. Was that the men's or the women's game? It was both. Uh, Cafesi said that the men got pinged for what they called the gentleman's agreement, where the clubs would have to ask permission and pay compensation before contracting each other's players. 
and the Women's League was subjected to a pretty low wage cap, which artificially suppressed their pay and had the consequence of widening the gender pay gap. Until the hipsters showed up on the side of worker freedom and gender equality. So it would seem. It's interesting because lots of leagues have salary caps, of course, both men's and women's, and mostly they're structured and approved to be enforceable. And I can pretty much guarantee you that salary caps for men will be higher than those for women, including in this country. So while competition law hipsters might have helped narrow the pay gap on this occasion, I think there's still plenty for everyone else to do on that front. Yeah, that's for sure. And sadly, we won't be seeing Mexico here for the World Cup next year. They have previously qualified, but not this time, having won no points in the CONCACAF tournament, which they hosted. Yeah, that's right. And the US team, who actually just won a big fight about equal pay, won that tournament over Canada, and it's Canada who'll be joining our Matildas next year in Group B. Oh, that must be the group of death, isn't it? Death to sexism, maybe, but I think the Matildas are well capable of getting out of that group. Interestingly, they got gender pay equality with the Socceroos not long ago in their collective bargaining agreement, but FIFA hasn't yet extended that to the World Cup prize money, so expect to hear a lot more about the gender pay gap in the coming year. Absolutely. But speaking of iconic sporting events, you've just spoken to the Honourable Michelle Rowland, who's now the Minister for Communications, and therefore responsible for sports broadcasting rights and other things, as well as being a former colleague of ours here. I did, and there's now a review underway of the anti-siphoning scheme, which is a big part of the sports broadcasting framework. So the Minister couldn't say all that much about those issues, but we had a great chat about her portfolio, her road to the Cabinet, and her time at GNT. Let's take a listen. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast the Honourable Michelle Rowland, MP, the member for Greenway, and also now the Minister for Communications, as well as being a former colleague here at Gilman Tobin. Minister, thank you so much for joining us here on Gadigal Land. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Minister, you worked at Gilbert and Tobin in the 2000s, which was a pretty interesting time in the communications sector. Can you tell us what drew you to that sector in the first place? It was a little bit of luck and fortune at the time. I was working in the private sector doing regulatory work and my boss at the time encouraged me to finish my college of law. My husband was already a lawyer at Mallison's and he said, why don't you actually go into law? Because I'd worked a bit in politics when I had finished my law degree. When I was doing law, thinking of myself as a lawyer was not something that came to the front of mind. I didn't know what kind of lawyer I wanted to be. So I applied for a few graduate positions and the first interview I had was Gilbert and Tobin and I was offered a job. And interestingly, my first interview was with partner Peter Waters and I turned up for the interview and someone said, oh, Peter Waters won't be able to interview today. He had to get on a plane and go to New Zealand. And I said, why do they make up this nonsense? Like really, if you don't want me to come here, but as it turns out, as everyone who knows Peter Waters will know, he would have gotten told to get on a plane and go to New Zealand immediately that afternoon. So I ended up being interviewed by none other than Kate Harrison who is now back at Gilbert and Tobin, but of course has had a really distinguished history. She worked for Michael Lavarch. Uh, she worked for John Faulkner. She worked for Prime Minister Gillard. And she and I crossed paths when I was in my first term as well. And now she's obviously back here doing amazing things, such a brilliant person. But I'd always been interested in technology. I remember my first bit of work was for a partner who asked me to research some aspects of what was called ADSL and no one had heard of it. And of course, I think Google was still in its infancy if it had started even. Like no one had written about this before. There was no textbook, remember Matt, you know? So we were basically making it up as we go. And I think once I understood, look, we're actually the first people looking at these things, drafting contracts around these things, drawing the pictures, dissecting the pictures to be able to document what these things are and what these deals are. 
So it was a bit chance, but also it was really fortunate that I fell into an area that I really loved and I thought was going somewhere. And of course, G&T has always been that challenger firm and I felt really nourished. I felt I was learning things that no one had learned before and that made me stay. Were you part of the digital circus? Was it called that then? No, I the, the circus had well and truly left town by the time I came in. No, I was part of the CNR team. Much more respectable. That's right. Competition and regulation for first-time listeners. Look, it was a really exciting time back then. What was it that led you to your decision to leave the law and move further into politics? I'd always been interested in politics and I'd been involved in political circles for all of my adult life. And I managed to combine working at Gilbert and Tobin with being a councillor and a deputy mayor on Blacktown Council. And it was one of those situations where Paul Keating said, you know, the train only comes in once every 20 years and an opportunity came up. Again, there was a lot of luck involved. The uh, seat I was running for had had a redistribution. I ended up coming into parliament on a margin of 0.8%. I used to dream about being a whole number. So being in double figures now, it really is a bit of a spin out. I felt the time was right as well. And I always wanted to have the before life. I always wanted to have experience in the private sector. Until then, the longest job that I'd had was, I worked as a checkout operator for eight years, right through school and high school. So Gilbert and Tobin became my second longest job. Um, There were moments there I thought my political career was going to be my shortest job, but it's actually turned out to be my longest so far. It was an easy decision because I felt very supported by the firm and I'm eternally grateful for the partners and Danny Gilbert in particular for being flexible, enabling me to do what I needed to do. I was able to structure my campaign around taking leave and, and work and I think that just says everything about Danny, who's one of the greatest people to live. So as you, as you mentioned, you were elected in 2010 to Greenway as part of the Gillard government. Yes, it was the Gillard government at the time, yes, which changed hands during the campaign. <laughs> and then there was a bit of time in the wilderness with the Labor Party losing the next three elections, all while you were increasing um, your own margins and your electorate. You had a number of shadow positions, including communications, but it must have been an interesting time to plunge back into the opposition. It was. And I mean, in 2013, especially when I got re-elected for the first time, no one expected me to hold my seat anyway. So that was just a bonus. And I'd always just seen being re-elected. That was always the goal. And I never saw beyond six o'clock on election day. And again, it was really that focus on people. I was you know, always just really focused on my electorate as I always will be. There's a lesson for everyone that all politics are local. I really enjoyed the citizenship and multiculturalism portfolio, having such a diverse electorate and just understanding the link between everything from inclusiveness to, you know, to racism as well and the, the economic impacts. So I learned a lot. It wasn't a matter of turning up and giving the same speech at different events. So I think it makes it all the more pertinent that we're in government now. We're actually able to execute things. We're making the hard decisions. We've got to back up what we said in the lead up to it. But again, you know, if I can demonstrate a bit of vulnerability, again, because I didn't see beyond six o'clock on election day, even for the last election, there was a moment there during the count on the night when someone went up to Michael, my husband, and said, I think your wife's going to be a cabinet minister. And I said, really? And like, because I couldn't let myself even think about it. And I'd never worked for government. I'd never worked in a department. I was one of the few people in cabinet who didn't have on before their name. So this has been a complete, entirely new job. I even 
my poor kids. So I got five and 10 year old daughters. That's even before we get to my poor husband, who's a partner at another law firm. I remember, because I, I'd said to them during the campaign, I said, oh, look, when the campaign's over, mummy is going to be around so much. I'm going to have so much time. So they throw it back at me all the time. They said, but you said you were going to be around. But I guess that's the plight of all of us who are trying to balance as best we can work and family responsibilities. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that happened that exemplified, I guess, the worst part of federal politics was when you were denied a pair by the opposition to come home and look after your daughter who was sick. That was that was not a great time. And when I look back, I, I wonder how I actually did cope with that time. I was first time member of parliament, most marginal seat in New South Wales. There was everything being thrown at the Gillard government at the time. And I, I had a new baby. I was first time mum. And it was terribly hard. And my family made a lot of sacrifices to help me get through that. But I think things are different now. I think not everything's perfect, but I think a lot of things are different. You're always going to have that struggle with work-life balance. But I'm very aware that you know, I represent a lot of people who do exactly the same thing. I see them in the morning when I'm at train stations. They drop their children to childcare, then they go and get on the train and they do an honest day's work. And that is, you know, the way of life for so many of us, for so many of you know, the good people working here in, you know, not only lawyers, but the support people, you know, everyone has to make things balanced. But I think there's two really good things. I think firstly, for all its negatives, I think the pandemic made us stop and recalibrate a bit as well. And I think that it's become more accepted that people can work productively in different ways. Working from home, you know, or remote working wasn't a thing really at the time I was at Gilbert and Tobin. That's not to say, you know, I wasn't working remotely a lot because I spent quite a bit of time overseas. But again, technology has changed that as well. And that's one of the key things that I'm focused on when we talk about delivering the best quality communications, irrespective of where you live or work, including in the regions, doesn't matter how much you earn. But I also think that attitudes have changed in the parliament as a result of more women being there. We now have more than 50% women in the government caucus room, which is a, an incredible achievement. And I think says a lot about the prime minister, it says a lot about the team, it says a lot about senior women who were there, like my excellent colleagues, Minister Katie Gallagher, Minister Tanya Plibersek, Minister Catherine King, people who have really been encouraging of other women. And I think that should be well noted. And yeah, there's an obligation on us too. I remember thinking in my first term, I was a backbencher and I looked around, I saw a lot of people They were looking up, you know, what's the next rung on the ladder I can climb. Very few people I felt were turning around and holding out a hand going, here, I'll help you pull up. But again, that's one of the key learnings I had from working in such a great team environment at Gilbert and Tobin. I felt a really strong team culture. I felt a lot of collegiality. There was a real focus on getting things done properly for the right motivations because we were proud of where we were. And I do feel that a lot of that is now reflected in the government that we have today. Like there is a real sense of collaboration and I think that the Prime Minister has a really good leadership style and that you know, he's been really generous. He's given his ministers one clear instruction, you to deliver on your election commitments competently. So we become a competent team of people doing our jobs. And I think that, that has, that's been noted already. 
So the Labor Party was returned to government in May this year, and you're now the Minister for Communications. At the same time, there's a, a Minister for Cybersecurity, there's an Assistant Minister for Competition, there's a Treasurer who's responsible for competition policy, an Attorney General who looks after privacy, and also, I think, cybercrime now, which are all areas that can often overlap and can move around over time. What are your main areas of responsibility? So I've got the two big GBEs. I've got Australia Post and MBN Co. I've got Telco Regulations. So the machinery of government sent, sets out, you know, the, the acts that obviously I'm responsible for and the parts of acts. But it's primarily media, telco sector, the GBEs. But you're right, there is some overlap. Comms has changed over the last 10 years. The way in which we have so many platforms, that evolution to make it much more horizontal rather than these vertical silos, I think that's been coming for a while. I remember writing articles with other partners here about how there'd been a movement towards more of an emphasis on telco as being part of that critical infrastructure space, especially after the events of 9-11 and a greater understanding about the vulnerabilities of our systems and cybercrime was sort of just starting to develop as a concept. So I think the fact that it's become much more horizontal, that the platforms go into a treasury space, the ACCC and the ACMA, for example, they've always worked constructively together. I think there's always been this positive working relationship between those regulators. Attorney General Mark Dreyfus is brilliant and, of course, he recognises that under the Telco Act, there's been privacy laws, for example, that have been there long before they extended to the private sector. So he's well across that. My other excellent colleague, Minister Claire O'Neill, she has specific responsibility for cybersecurity as that intersects with home affairs. So that goes to the national security elements. The Attorney General has those criminal elements that come because he has the AFP within his purview. But, you know, I think as you saw with the Optus data breach, for example, they do intersect and it did require a really whole of government, whole of ministry approach. Treasurer Jim Chalmers was in there as well, of course, because one of the uh, key things we were concerned about was protecting consumers against identity theft and scams if this personal information were to be divulged. So, yeah, I think it's been a really collaborative sort of whole of government effort there. And unfortunately, has been seen recently as well with yet another significant cybersecurity incident on Medibank. I think it's a real wake-up call for the corporate sector as well. But I think the lesson too for government is we need to make sure that organisations keep reporting these matters and we need to look for gaps, especially in the privacy space. If you ask any punter in the street the lens through which they view this, they're viewing it through a privacy lens, like what is being done with my data? And data, of course, and Gilbert and Tobin, I think, has always been the forefront of thought leadership here. Data has been that great horizon. People sit around wondering, well, how did everyone else make money out of my data except me? So, Minister, you've been an advocate of the NBN since your very first speech to Parliament in 2010. And it can't have been easy to see the last government implement the network in a very different way than was originally proposed. How far away do you now think we are from a really world-class network and, and what more needs to be done? Well, that's a Dorothy Dixer. Since yesterday, we announced delivery of our election commitment of funding $2.4 billion towards upgrading for full fibre access to an additional 1.5 million premises around Australia. Thank you for asking. And 660,000 of those premises at least will be in regional Australia, which is really important. Look how far away are we? Look, the repair job is underway. And we expect completion of these upgrades by the end of 2025. I do think in a 
political sense, I'm really keen to get away from what the NBN is to what it can do. That argument's been done and won, that fibre was always the best option. But the other big challenge too, and this goes beyond the NBN, accessibility, affordability and literacy in particularly vulnerable communities, I think is really important. I mean, this government was elected on a platform of a better future for all. And that includes, for example, our First Nations Australians. There's a closing the gap target for communications, which it looks impossible to be met in the timeframe. So I think it's really important to establish some baselines. I've got a really big focus in this area and we'll have more to say. But yeah, it's one thing about having a first class network. It's another thing ensuring that the people who can really benefit from it are able to as well. So I'll have more to say on that, but I think that gives you a good sense of where my priorities lie here. I like the idea of a repair job. It's like when you invite a Sparky into your house, the first thing they're going to do is look at it and say, oh, what have they done here? Well, we all knew what they'd done there, especially after they backflipped on fibre at the end of 2020, but I digress. We, We love to talk about sport on this podcast. We see there's a new consultation paper out about the future of the anti-siphoning laws, which are designed to make sure that important sporting events are available to watch for free. What are the developments that have led to this review? Well, we took an election commitment to review the anti-siphoning list to ensure that Australians, irrespective of where they live or how much they earn, still have the opportunity to enjoy iconic sporting events live and free. And that was a really clear commitment. We've released a discussion paper and it's uh, it's going to be a good time for consultation until early December. We do have a deadline. The anti-siphoning list is set to expire in April next year. So we want to get some recommendations in before that time, obviously. It is a trend. These uh, sporting events and digital rights, we've seen the rise of international, multinational platforms with deep pockets, and they're obviously not covered by the scheme. And there's a whole piece there that we're doing around media reform as well, including around prominence and you know examining media diversity. So this fits within that as well. And of course, everyone would have seen the AFL rights deal that happened recently. I had some stuff to say at the time too, to ensure that there isn't a diminution in what is currently available live and free. And what I did there was a statement of the law, a statement of our election policy, and I think a legitimate desire of this government to ensure that all Australians, exactly as I said, irrespective of where they live or how much they earn, have that opportunity. But we'll let this review run its course. I invite all your listeners to participate in that as well. As I said, it's going to be a really fulsome consultation. We want to make sure that we hear from grassroots sporting clubs, organisations, broadcasters, and all Australians who love their sport and We'll examine what comes out of that review and that will inform what we do with the anti-siphoning list going forward. It's a shame you can't ensure less one-sided grand finals as part of the review. Being an Eels fan, I concur. So the new government always said that it would hit the ground running and it's certainly been a busy time for all of you in the last six months. Looking a bit further ahead, uh, what's something you'd most like to see happen, help happen during this term and maybe what would you like to take to the next election? I really want to establish some base metrics for improving various aspects of accessibility and connectedness for people. I'm a big believer in metrics. I think you can measure your capacities and I think that's what we're going to be judged on. We're electing on a platform of a better future for all and we should be able to demonstrate and be able to measure that. One of the big ones obviously is going to be the MBN. I think the very clear commitment we made about keeping the NBN in public ownership for the foreseeable future while we undertook this repair job. I think it 
reset a lot of the economics and and the incentives. And as you know, there's a special access undertaking process that's going on at the moment. And I welcome the engagement of the regulator and MBN Co and the retail service providers in that. And I think that ultimately, as I've said on the record, this is about consumers and their long-term interests. So getting that MBN repair job well underway, but not only doing that, but seeing the benefits of it, I think is really important. And even to go a bit further than that, this portfolio is very regionally focused. One of the commitments we took was a $30 million on-farm connectivity project. We were the only, the Nats didn't, you know, regional Liberal MPs didn't, we did. Labor took to the election a policy of enhancing on-farm connectivity so that our food and fibre producers can utilise the best available technology, including 5G, in order to increase their output, to make them more productive. And just seeing what some of these vendors can do and you know what smart people can do when they put these applications into practice, it's really exciting. And I look forward to actually seeing what comes about from that. I think it'll be really positive. Finally, Minister, uh, like electricians, new governments always spend a fair bit of time, let's say, differentiating themselves from their predecessors. But uh, what would you say the best thing was that the former government did in communications or in some related area? Oh, I actually think there's two things. The first is... During the pandemic, we relied on the comms sector more than any other. Yes, of course, it was a medical and political state of emergency, but what did we need to keep us going? We needed comms to keep going. We needed the NBN to work. We needed our mobile services to work and we needed the post to work. So the two great GBEs, Australia Post and the National Broadband Network carried the day. So I think that that should not go unnoticed and and I have done that publicly. Some days getting that package from an Australia Post delivery person in a hazmat suit was the highlight of a lot of people's days. And during the, the 2020 sort of initial lockdown in New South Wales, yeah, there were a lot of jokes made about how the NBM was going to fail. But I publicly came out and said, the fact that this is a predominantly fixed line network means that it will function. The backbone will hold up and it did. And the other thing that we really want to build on, the co-investment model for mobile rollout, especially in the regions, has clearly been popular. I do think we need to look to different models now. We're getting to, in some respects, a bit of diminishing returns on some of that co-investment model. And to that end, I've got a parliamentary committee looking at multi-carrier options for investment. The department is looking at some of these issues as well. But I think it's time to evolve. You know, it's good that we had that starting point that demonstrated it was able to be delivered broadly. It was a good starting point for the next evolution in how we have that co-investment and what different things it can produce. So there are probably two things I'd highlight. Fantastic. Minister, it's another exciting time in your portfolio and we're all looking forward very much to seeing where you take things in the next few years. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. What a great interview. I think it was the minister's idea to have the CNR Christmas party at Panther's World of Entertainment, as it was then. Yeah, but she seemed a bit dark about her Parramatta Eels losing to the Panthers in the grand final this year, so I'm not sure she'll be back anytime soon. Mm. Anyway, we'll definitely keep an eye on that review of the anti-siphoning scheme which is looking at some really important changes, including adding more women's competitions to the list. Well, at the moment, there's netball as well as uh, Olympics, com games and tennis. But apart from that, it's kind of assumed that the wording of the football, rugby league, rugby union and cricket entries are limited to the men's game. 
And of course, the anti-siphoning list was last amended in 2017, which seems like a long time ago now. It does. I mean, since then, we've seen the rise of streaming services, which are increasingly carrying sport and competing with pay TV and aren't covered at all by the anti-siphoning scheme. And even the free-to-air networks are broadcasting a lot of sport on their internet-only channels. And there's a question about whether that still counts as free, especially if you pay for it with your data, I suppose. So there's a lot of interesting details to dig into there. Yeah, there are. Um, I do think we need to talk, though, about the Department of Infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development, Communications and the Arts. Do we? Where the minister is one of the number of ministers. I mean, Ditridkar, I'm not saying they should go the full Kefefe Act, but they could have made it a bit more pronounceable. Well, I did have a look at that. I mean, you could have Dardkit or Ditcard, but a lot of them, I think, would have to bleep. I can see that. Um, Maybe that's why they're just going with infrastructure for short. Wise decision, I'd say. But before we go, what can you see in your crystal ball? Well, we've just conducted an ex-post review of previous crystal ball predictions, similar to what the ACCC has done with merger decisions. Mm -hmm. And in most cases, we've been far too vague to ever be held to account, but there was one prediction that was verifiably wrong. Is that the one where you predicted that the competition law cryptic crossword would be popular? Well, that was only ever a hope, never a prediction. But I did predict that the ACCC's fifth interim report in the Digital Platform Services Inquiry would probably come out in October because all the other ones came out 28 days after the deadline for sending them to the government. And that didn't happen, uh, but I'm still predicting it's going to come out any day now, probably just after we record this. Doubling down, I like it. This is the interim report where the ACCC considers whether it needs additional powers to regulate digital platforms such as the ex-ante rulemaking powers we've been talking about for a while. That's right. So it is a bit different from the previous reports, and it's possible that the government might give some kind of response to this one, and maybe that's why it's taken a bit longer to release. But that's just speculation, not a prediction. Can you predict or speculate on what's going to be in interim report number five? Well, I'm guessing it's going to have, at a minimum, a little bit of vertical integration, a little bit of market domination, a little bit of cyber security, a little bit of privacy policy, a little bit of bargaining power for sure, a little bit of harm that we have to cure, a little bit of power to make new rules, a little bit of forward-looking tools. Is that the ex-ante sea shanty we've been waiting for? But seriously, Mambo Number no. 5 is one of those earworm tunes that has badly needed a new set of lyrics, so thank you for that, Matt. Reminds me of the time our group performed Moves Like Gina at the Christmas party. Do you remember that? That was unforgettable, unfortunately. But speaking of unforgettable, last episode, Peter Waters, who the minister mentioned, brought us up to speed on AI, and now he's put together an update on the blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights that President Biden's Office for Science and Tech Policy has drawn up. These are built around five fairly simple principles of safety, non-discrimination, privacy, transparency, and consent. Now, these are non-binding at the moment, but they're likely to influence government policies in the first instance. And after that, who knows? That's right. The US midterm elections are happening right about the time this episode's released. Uh, We're not going to make any prediction there, but it has become unusual lately for the president's party to control both the House and the Senate after their first midterms. So those midterms may not affect what the agencies do over there, but they may well have an impact on the Democrats' legislative agenda, including all of those big tech bills that haven't made it through both houses yet and any kind of enshrinement of an AI Bill of Rights. That's right. And we'll have updates on all those things next time. Remember, you can find relevant links in the show notes and email us at edge at gtlaw.com.au. And I'm predicting we'll get mail. And I'm predicting that we'll have some great guests in the next few weeks, including G&T partner Elizabeth Avery with the latest developments from the US. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends. Till next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin. Or Gilbert and Tobin.